Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, welcome to the Sister Sister Podcast. This is a podcast all about friendships, family, finances, and everything in between. I'm Candice Brathwaite, and each week I'm welcoming a guest to delve into lessons we've learned the hard way, so hopefully you don't have to. Let's do this. This week I'm joined by Otega Uwagba to talk all things money. Otega is the author of the Sunday Times best-selling Little Black Book, a toolkit for working women and whites on race and other falsehoods, which came out last year. And we need to talk about money, which is out now. Otega is a culture journalist and speaker. Her writing has been published in Vogue, The Cut, The Guardian, The Gentlewoman, The New Statesman, ID and Days, and in 2018, she was selected for the Forbes 30 Under 30 media list. She graduated from Oxford with a degree in politics, philosophy and economics and grew up in South London where she still resides and given all that she has achieved, I think she is definitely someone who can speak to us about money in a really frank manner. Otega, how are you? I am really good. How are you, Candice? Um, I want to do that thing where I'm like, I'm so good. I'm rubbish, mate. Oh, really? Like, Why? It's just it, the sense of urgency with this coming out of the pandemic mm. and the diary getting full again. Mm. I'm a bit like, oh my gosh. Mm. And when I'm Not Your Baby Mother came out last year, we'd just gone into lockdown. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It came out May 2020. Gosh, you are really cranking out the books. <laughs> that is incredible. Incredible. I feel insane. It feels like a very silly decision on my part. <laughs> but um, your book is wonderful. Thank we need you. to talk about Thank money. You. What made you want to talk about money and write a book about it? Oh, big question. Um, I, do you know what? I kind of feel like I was always destined to write this book, actually, like thinking about it. But the actual idea for the book came to me actually just before my first book came out. So I published Little Black Book back in 2017. And I just really distinctly remember when I was, it was a couple of weeks or a couple of months before it came out. And it was my first book. And, you know, I was getting all these emails and like, press requests and like friends were texting me and they were all being like oh my god wow you must be so excited and you know there was this kind of like buzzy young author kind of vibe going on and my Instagram was popping and it all looked super (laughs) exciting and I was really really anxious about money because you know at that point in my career I wasn't making very much at all like I was still like a year into freelancing I hadn't been paid for my book yet and it's not as if I made a lot of money in terms of an advance for that book so I just kind of transitioned into this kind of self-employed writing creative role and I didn't know what my financial future looked like and I've always been quite an anxious person about money but in that moment I really felt this disconnect between what I knew the outside world was seeing and how I was feeling inside and that tension I just felt I can't be the only one who experiences this I can't be the only one who feels this conflicted and overwrought and anxious about money and that is when I decided to write this book so even before my first book came out and 
ever mm. since then I just kind of started making notes and just kind of jotting down ideas and then I think sort of like about a year and a half later I actually pitched it to my publishers so yeah I will say I'm absolutely loving it. I'm only halfway through. I know there are people that would get you on their podcast and lie and be like, I've finished, I've finished. Mm -mm. I'm not going to shame up myself. I am. That's smart. I'm on on chapter five, my favourite chapter thus far. We'll get into that in a bit because, girl, I was like, the tea is piping. Mm -hmm. Yes, the right type of black. I was like, sis, no, don't draw me out like this. (laughs) So, guys, you need to pick up this book, but... A question that is really, I really want to ask you specifically because many people know that my daughter is privately educated mm-hmm. and she is the first on my side of the family. Bode's from Nigeria, very different situation, mm. so he tells me. Um, but on my end, she's the first child to go to private school and I am constantly like balancing guilt and am I doing right by you? Are you feeling diverse, like a diverse community and loved and supported in this situation? But also this thing of, okay, surely I'm making this money to make my child's life better. And one thing I really love about your book off the top is how you describe what it's like being in a private school setting. Mm. So I'm really, really grateful for that. So the question is, having been privately educated yourself, do you think there are things you learned about money, even if only subconsciously, due to being in that setting that you perhaps would not have otherwise? Uh, yeah, I learned that some people in the world really have money. <laughs> and how, I was like, wow, people are rich <laughs> for this joint. <laughs> I was like, you spent how much? <laughs> so, I yeah, that was what first really exposed me to. So I was at my private school on a full scholarship, so... You know, it's not something that my parents could have afforded, but I was very lucky to kind of sneak my way in. And that was the first kind of exposure I had to people in the UK who really exist at the pinnacle of wealth and privilege. Mm. And that, you know, education was continued when I went to Oxford, which is was even posher than my private school, if you believe it or not. And like my private school, it's like there have been some very kind of prominent people who've sent their kids there just to put it that way Mm. um and it's right in the middle of the city like that is upper upper middle class Mm. um but yeah I learned how to interact with those people and just how they operate how they behave how they see the world I became very comfortable around those sorts of people in a way that I think has probably benefited me as I've moved through the world first of all at Oxford and then Mm working in media like I know how these posh mostly white people operate and think and as a result you know I think it's really interesting like when I went to Oxford I was like I was very intimidated by the prospect of Oxford and I was really worried I was going to be surrounded by a bunch of rich kids and I was surrounded by a bunch of rich kids but I also knew how to interact with them and it's really interesting like a friend of mine who definitely came from like a wealthier background than I did and you know her family is very firmly middle class but she went to a state school and I felt like when she got there she felt really thrown by these people even though socioeconomically their backgrounds were much more similar um mm. if not you know completely similar whereas because that's not the kind of environment she was used to she felt a little bit you know intimidated provoked by them whereas I was like oh yeah I know how these people operate and I was kind of fine with that so I'd say yeah that kind of gave me exposure to how the other half live in a way that um has probably benefited me and the whole the rest of it the network the connections the confidence the yes eloquence all of that sort of stuff I would attribute to my private school I feel that the sass coming off this almost eight-year-old in my house is mind-blowing or the dedication to having her point taken seriously I'm like wow this is this really is about the school you go to Mm -hmm. and the people you're surrounded by Mm -hmm. because I don't even I couldn't I don't even think I could have been this vocal about my opinions or believe that I had options at her age and I'm telling my friends now who can foresee themselves able to make the same decision and I'm like it's not even the education for me it's the network and the confidence and just seeing her barrel into a room with the expectation of these white boys Mm -hmm. I'm just like wow to me 
that is worth the money and seeing you communicate your experience I think is really important and really powerful because I've been seeing a lot of conversation about sending black kids to private schools in the UK and most of it with not very positive rhetoric to To, be honest to be honest I always say that I had an overall good experience at my school and an overall Mm. good experience at Oxford there were definitely incidents of racism and microaggression there at the time Mm. I didn't know to call them that um, and didn't couldn't really identify it so but I always feel like because of what I've heard about people who've been in similar situations that perhaps my experience was a bit of an anomaly for various reasons. Mm. So it's not like I can wholeheartedly say for black children, it's going to be a good experience. It's just that I know the experience that I had Mm. was good. Um, And especially, I know (laughs) the thing is overall is it's funny, like I don't overall in an ideal world, private education would not exist. That's the way I see it. Like in the UK, I don't agree with it as a concept. However, I have seen how, especially as a black girl, uh, the fact that I had that experience essentially mitigated the fact that I occupy a really kind of marginalised position within society. And so I'm never, especially when it comes to black parents, because I've also had friends of mine who are black women who are a bit older than me. They're like, what was your school like? Or, you know, they're kind of having the private or state school um, Mm. conundrum. And I'm like, I'm never going to judge you or say don't send your black kids to a private school because it's a jungle out there for black children so Mm. whatever you can do to mitigate that I'm just like and like I said in an ideal world would not exist if there was a referendum tomorrow abolishing Mm. private education making everything equal and state I'd vote to abolish but as long as that system exists I'm like you've got to do what you've got to do like I always thought it was a bit mad how Diane Abbott used to get so (laughs) much stick for sending her kid to a private school for sending her her son to a private school. And I think she actually came out at one point and was like, listen, like, I'm I'm a black mum. You just do what you got to do. Like, that's it. It's not about politics. Like, it's not about party like, lines, whatever. Exactly. Like, all the white guys in the same party didn't right. do that. Please. Exactly. Please. Exactly. The fact that she would even have to defend that choice is absurd. So to any black parent listening who is in the financial position to make that choice, um, do so with the intention that you are just trying to take, um, just trying to put your black child in a slightly easier position. Uh, It's really important that we communicate that private education does not dissolve one's blackness. That's really important also. Mm. So we go out into the working world and we're still going to be faced, like Otega is saying, with the microaggressions and the racism. But if we have the money or if your child is bright enough to bag a scholarship that can help protect them and level them up, as a parent talking to another parent listening to this, always choose that option. Like, I feel that so deeply. Anyway. Not to preach. <laughs> coming coming from a Black Caribbean background, I found that many around me saw credit as the devil. There was very much a rhetoric rooted in fear when it came to borrowing money. Did you have a similar experience? Yeah, I read about that in the money chapter of your book, actually, and I found that really, really interesting. Um, I think so. I come, I'm Nigerian, so I'm coming from like a Black West African background. And mm. It wasn't like credit was the devil, but my parents have definitely encouraged me not to get into debt. And their mm-hmm. mindset is definitely of the mindset of just like, say, I mean, and they, of course, they've, you know, used credit. Like, you know, if you buy a washing machine, okay, spread it out over 12 months or whatever, and that is credit. But in terms of like putting a lot of stuff on credit cards, like my parents mm-hmm. are always like, that's not how you should operate your money. So as a result, apart from student debt, you know, touch wood and the fact that I now have this big old mortgage hanging over my head. I don't have any debt. I've never been in debt. And obviously that's also a privileged position to be in because I've never needed to go into debt because I think it's also worth saying that a lot of people simply can't make ends meet without using credit. But it's never like, I don't know, like when some of my friends who are in similar economic positions to me kind of came out into late teens, 20s and all like, wham, 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 like getting credit cards and all that kind of thing. I was just like, no. Like, so I prefer, so like for instance now, I, you know, moved into bought a flat a while ago, like six months ago, and I want to do it up over the next couple of months, next couple of years. For me, my approach has always been and will always be I'm going to save up till I have all that money or till I have part of the money and do it Mm. and pay for it 
once I have the money, but I know that sometimes people will be like, okay, I'll put it on a credit card and then pay mm. off over the next 10, 12, 24 months. And that for me just does not work as a content. It makes me very anxious. I read this quote by this writer that I um, really like, Eula Biss, who said credit, you know, the ability to take on credit relies on inherent sense of optimism that the future is going to be better <laughs> than the present. I know, bars, <laughs> bars, right? <laughs> I don't have that optimism and it's changing slightly but I was like I want to pay for stuff whilst I have the money like I can't especially being self-employed I'm like I'm not going to take on 20,000 debt now and be like oh yeah I'll pay it off in the future as things get better even though my career is on an upward trajectory I'm like I I don't like that it makes me very uncomfortable so I'm sitting in my flat you know with very little furniture I'm like I'm just gonna save up and pay for it as I go that's the way I approach money and that is definitely something that I absorbed from my from my parents I'm really I'm I yes I, it's a strong term very jealous of that because anyone who has or will read sister sister will know that my education or the way I dealt with credit was sincerely the opposite mm. and it's very very pardon the pun costly mm. later on in life yeah it's so cost like especially um because Otega pointed this out, and also this is important to say, that I was living a life that felt like I couldn't do without credit. Mm. So when, you know, those credit cards dropped, and I'm also surrounded by people in my life who are like, yeah, just run that up to the limit. It's fine, babe. Like no sense of financial discipline or literacy in my space whatsoever. You're like, yeah, okay, you literally just pick it off a tree. Great. Even when you go to rent properties now, those things can impact you if they lead to CCJs. Mm -hmm. Let me not even talk about the pain of going for a high interest mortgage <laughs> because your credit file ain't up to scratch. That's a conversation so many people, I don't, I don't hear people having that conversation enough and that's why I'm really open about my lessons with money mm -hmm. because I think it could be very easy if someone follows me on social media to be like, wow, didn't she turn life around? No, I'm still paying for a lot of mistakes, quite literally. Mm. And um, so any way I can get in people's ear and be like, check your credit file, mm. keep up with those payments, bring certain payments down, avoid Klarna like the devil. Oh my God, Don't I get have me started such a be my bonnet about Klarna. <laughs> like, the number of tweets I've sent about that company. I just can't. Don't. It's just, Don't. It's just putting debt in a millennial pink cover. Like, it's like, immoral. Don't do that. I see people on TikTok who are like, you know, I, I, I need to pay my Klarna bill, but I can't eat. And it's, again, that idea of um, invisible money and us trying mm. to keep up with the Joneses. Um, so I just want to make the conversation surrounding credit and how we use it. And essentially what it's for, because I'm now learning that from new people in my life mm. who are like you use a little bit you pay it off just to show people that you can do that it's actually just a tool to keep that credit file in shape I'm like well if someone had told me that when I was 18 you know but here we are I'm not going to that's another thing this is the kind of podcast guys we're not going to get down on learning certain lessons we peak the situation we learn and we move forward let us not sit in our sorrow. Mm -hmm. Ain't nobody got time for that. That is not cute. Anyway, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't seem to be shy in talking about what you want for yourself, including what you want to earn. Years ago, I came across a comment about me which said that they liked me so much better when I was poor. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> literally someone slapped me across the face yeah yeah and it wasn't even me that came across it, it was Bode Bode came across a comment where someone was like oh I just used to like her so people much better when she was born people are really just out there hating <laughs> have you ever had negativity thrown your way when it comes to speaking about what you believe you deserve oh good question I'd say in a professional context yes but on a kind mm. of minor level of someone kind of coming back so let's say if I was negotiating like a client fee or a project or something like that and now I have you know people who negotiate kind of certain things for me mm. but definitely when I started out and because I used to work in advertising 
and I have a lot of freelance self-employed friends I knew what the going rates were let's say if you're doing a consultancy project or a brand project when I was starting out and so I'd ask for those fees and the way some of these people whether it's like a PR or a marketing manager would come back and just kind of be like oh well that's way above the market fee especially for someone with your Instagram following and I was like yeah do you know what I don't have a big Instagram following but that's not why you're coming to me you're coming to me because I was on the Forbes list and I'm a Sunday Times best-selling author and I'm an expert and I was like if you want a big Instagram following go somewhere else but this is what I'm charging for my expertise so it's very much take or leave it and I would definitely have people you know kind of what's the word negging Mm. you know just in a kind of low level way and I don't entertain that at all I think in my personal life no I think actually my friends are pretty especially ones who kind of work in within media they're pretty I guess impressed by the fact that I really kind of go for what I want and also it works their benefit as well so they can run questions by I'm always here to help people negotiate things I will I've drafted many an email on my friend's behalf mm-hmm. like all of that I tell them what I was paid for xyz I was like you shouldn't accept this mm-hmm. so in my personal life being vocal about money um hasn't been an issue thus far yeah that's that's how I'd say it <laughs> okay I get that I understand that it's just like you said yeah the the hating which I mean that comment is but I feel like that comment is slightly different to what um what I've just talked about because that's about people me being vocal but that comment is hating on you for your financial trajectory being on the up yeah you know and someone yeah. base you know it's this thing of like quote-unquote relatability and it's like I liked her more and she was relatable and mm. on that side of things I've definitely had just the odd comment maybe mm. from I can think of one person in particular who just felt like I was like don't count my cash that's how I felt mm. I was like don't count other people's cash and I know because I've done that as well although I like to think I'm a bit more subtle like I'm not gonna <laughs> make a comment or pass judgment but I'm like if I know that you're counting my cash it makes me feel uncomfortable yeah. and that I've had um and that's felt quite sad uh even thinking about it now because these are people this is someone who I think knows how hard I've worked and knows what I've been through stuff that you know I don't disclose yeah even in the book or whatever just like knows knows what I've I've gone through um and that thinking you've kind of like that one kind of scenario that felt quite sad but I don't know you just kind of you move that's really not really about me that's how I think about it it isn't I love that you said that it so isn't I think people will know from reading my books that um I'm I'm and I don't mean this in a way to downplay myself but in the methodical smart way Otega comes across I am absolutely the woo-woo girl standing (laughs) in my garden at midnight like yeah so abundant and when you move with that kind of energy it can make others around you be that online or those really close to you deeply uncomfortable and so many of these sly digs or comments like that have absolutely nothing to do with you Mm. And if you let them get under your skin, it could be the way you torpedo your life. Trust me, it's no good for anyone. Even the fact that Bode came across that comment, I was like, yeah, but you went looking though, didn't you? So let's not let's not go looking for things. Let's just keep our eye on the prize. Mm. Um, so it is just about like understanding that as you develop in your career, if your finances are on the up, that may piss a lot of people off. Mm. But anyway... I remember early on in my career being on the set of a campaign where I was the only black woman. Actually, I'm lying. There was a light-skinned mixed-race woman present too. I later found out that I got paid £300 and everyone else got varying four figures. Ah, you're <laughs> killing me, you're killing me, you're killing me with these, <laughs> these anecdotes. You, uh, you, yeah, it's just... <laughs> I don't think you understand the visceral pain and irritation and anger I feel when first of all when I've been exploited underpaid like you do not want to be on the receiving end of that and also when I hear about it for other women and for other black women like it really it triggers something inside me so 
sorry I'm interrupting you, but I just want to say that it irritates me because it's the fact that it's not everyone being underpaid. It's like they're selective with who they choose and who they think they can take advantage of. Yeah. It really irritates me. And so I wanted to ask, and you've already alluded to it, but I wanted to ask, and I'm being very specific about this question. Have you been able to identify where not only race, but more specifically your skin tone has diluted your earning prowess? Do you know what? It's it's really, really hard to isolate, especially when you work within media where so much of what you or I might be paid is, it's not intangible, but it's based on profile. And it's like, Mm. there are so many different factors that go into it. There is, there is no like direct comparison. You can try, but it's like, there's no other Candice, there's no other Otega. So Mm. it's often hard to, you know, come up with rates. It's not like, oh, I'm a marketing manager with three years experience. Therefore I should be in this pay band along with the others. Like it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, but I've definitely, with race, yeah, I've like shared, you know, swap numbers with white women I know. Mm. And, you know, even when someone approaches me, sometimes if I know someone who worked on something previously, I'll be like, oh, okay, I'll DM them if I, if I know them. Um, mm. And I've definitely, you know, retrospectively found out what certain people pay for things or what certain people were offered for things. Or I'll turn down an opportunity because it either isn't paid or doesn't pay enough. And then I will see someone, a white woman, take on maybe, it'll come out like a few weeks or a month later with a white woman. And I will think to myself, I know she did not do that for the fee that they were offering me. Mm. So it's obvious. And I make a note of the people who are responsible for those reach outs because I'm like, I'm not mm. going to work with you again. Yeah. Uh, or whatever. I'm, I'm, I remember these things because I do think there is an element of personal responsibility. Sometimes it's like, oh, this is the budget we've got. And I'm like, you need to go back and be having those conversations. Mm-hmm. And it's so prevalent. In terms of colorism, that, you know, so in my book, I talk about, you know, the stats around racial pay gaps and some mm-hmm. of the research I found really, well, it didn't shock me because I went, I didn't shock me because I went looking for it because I suspected this would be the case, <laughs> which is that, the lighter your skin tone, if you're black or Hispanic, um, the more money you earn. And actually, there was one study that I found that specifically cited that the racial pay gap was not so much a racial pay gap, but a skin tone pay gap, because they found that the pay gap between white people, I think the people in the study were men, but between white men and light skinned men was, quote unquote, statistically insignificant. Whereas Mm -hmm. the pay gap between the light-skinned men and the dark-skinned men, that was where the disparity was. But because in data, those things get aggregated, so they just say white and black. So you never realise that actually the gap is, depending on how deep your skin tone is. Um, And that's something I'm very conscious of, very aware of as a dark-skinned black woman. I, I see... I see light-skinned or biracial black women get opportunities and they are made the faces of things in a way that not just me, but other dark-skinned women who are more qualified are not. Oh, don't make me yell. I know, don't make I know, me yell. I know, I'm, I know I'm, I'm touching on a sore spot here. Um, and I just, I just notice it, you know, it's, it's, that is such a wide systemic thing you know especially within entertainment within the music Mm -hmm. industry you know a lot of these casting directors and producers they're like okay we need to tick the black box but I'm like they're like we don't actually want her to look too black (laughs) like Mm -hmm. this needs to be palatable (laughs) to middle England or they just simply don't want to work with a dark skinned black woman they have their ingrained Mm -hmm. prejudice I'm not gonna use prejudice ingrained racism um I'm aware of it um but I try not to let it bother me I think one thing that I'm very very grateful for is that which I find kind of interesting because so many dark-skinned black women have struggled with feeling away about their skin tone I've never felt that like I've always really loved my skin color 
Mm. Um, it was never anything when I was like a kid, any comments, you know, mm. oh, snap, sun. Like up until a couple of years ago, when I went on holiday, I used to tan the hell out of myself. And then I went to see like, a dermatologist <laughs> and she was like, you are frying your skin. Like I loved nothing more than coming back from holiday, looking even darker, skin glowing. I looked incredible. And now I can't do that. And I'm so annoyed. So <laughs> I feel... It's one of those things that I know is the way it is, but I just try not to let it bother me because ultimately I love my skin. So that's kind of yeah. how I get around it. I just, I know this specific episode for people listening is supposed to be about money, but um, the colorism thing, it really, it's a really sore spot for me. And it's sore because as Otega is saying, like I don't wake up with self-hate. I don't wake up thinking, feeling despondent because I'm dark skinned. Mm -hmm. You know, as the day goes on, something may happen. I may lose out on a job. I may, um, someone may try to pay me less because of said dark skin. And that, that's an outside problem. That's not a me problem. That's not an Otago problem. If you're a dark skinned black woman listening to this, I need to help you understand that is not a you problem. And all we can do is keep moving forward in any space or arena in your work your job it doesn't have to be front facing be that if you work in a hospital or you're a stay-at-home mum you always have to wake up and I got it sounds so wet but fix your own crown because you have to be diligent in showing people how you want and deserve to be respected because the streets are mad I don't have an intelligent way of saying that the streets are mad and if we allow the hate for specifically dark-skinned black women to get into our hearts you will, you will, you'll die before you even begin. So it really is about like facing yourself in the mirror, doing affirmations, whatever you have to do to raise yourself up, be about that because the outside world can be terribly unkind. And I think the only reason I'm even getting to speak to Otega in this way and we're having this dialogue is because A, we definitely came from homes that promoted self-love and B, we ultimately don't let that win. I feel really strongly about that, guys. Sorry to derail the conversation. I chuckled, I did chuckle, at reading how well turned out you like to be and how your mother ensured <laughs> she went above and beyond for your school uniform. I always liken this to a Sunday best theory that I have. One of my favourite chapters in We Need to Talk About Money is The Right Type of Black. There has been a huge growth in black girl luxury content across social media, something that I am a huge consumer of, pardon the pun. Have you seen this? And if so, what do you make of it? Black women love fashion and they love clothes <laughs> and they love spending money and they can be bougie as well. And I think that it's only recently that we're finally being allowed into those spaces. And I say being allowed very deliberately because there have been clear barriers erected mm. to keep people like us out. And, you know, I, lo I love it. I love to see it. I love kind of, as you say, black luxury content. Like I, <laughs> the number of people who call me bougie on like daily basis, <laughs> I'm always just like I'm, like, I'm not bougie. I just like nice things. Like, <laughs> it's just like, but you know, yeah, I, I like, I, I do like nice things. And it's also about the pleasure of finding, being able to afford them and also feeling like I can justify them and like I deserve them. Mm. And like, listen, I'm not out here in Bottega dropping 10K. Like, I mean like, okay, every now and then I'll buy myself a nice pair of shoes or like a nice bag mm. or something or like, you know, the sales are coming up. So I'm going to see what I can snag, you know, on a discount. But I think it's really interesting. I mean, I'm a little bit skeptical about it from a brand point of view, like a fashion brand mm -hmm. point of view, because black is cool, black mm -hmm. sells. Mm -hmm. And, and it's something I talk about in the book, but the fashion industry in recent years has really gotten hit to the fact that hip hop culture and hip hop artists mm -hmm. and black culture, all of that stuff, we are the architects of cool and that mm -hmm. stuff sells. And they're, you know, pinching little bits here and there, platforming mm -hmm. a few people here and there. They've also gotten onto the fact that across the board, people are looking for more diversity. If you haven't, you know, mm -hmm. I think it was last year during, you know, just after George Floyd was killed and, during all those conversations about racism and, you know, Black Lives Matter, there were a couple of fashion brands that were called out for never having posted. Mm. I don't want to name the name because I can't quite remember exactly which one it was. So I don't want to incorrectly accuse someone, but for never having posted, you know, 
a black person on their feeds ever, but then posting like a black square. And everybody was like, what? <laughs> now, hang on a second. <laughs> uh, so from a brand point of view, I am a little bit cynical. I kind of watch them carefully. But in terms of, you know, individual people, like black women, like I'm really pleased for us. Like I think... You know, I don't think it's like a political thing or activism, but I just think black women should be allowed to have nice things and you should be able to see yourself in that. Yeah, I came across a TikTok the other day, which I don't want to I don't want to put in the column of bad, but it was a black woman trying to politicise black female luxury content no and I was just like girl it's not that deep no 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 it's not it's not that deep I just I like the bag I like the shoes like it's that's it (laughs) it's not that deep and I remember making a video a couple weeks ago where I spoke about the fact that there's one black woman I follow in particular and she bought yet another so she has many Chanel bags Mm. and I found myself being like girl how can you afford that And, you know, it's that we have to work on as black women, Mm. because what's so funny is I also admitted I follow a bundle of white luxury content creators and I never question why, you know, they they buy two Birkins a month. It just doesn't even come into my psyche. So there's something to be said for us seeing this version of luxury and just getting used to it. Mm. I don't want it to be political. We don't have to pick it apart. Sometimes live and let live. And also on a very, again, woo-woo ancestral thing, like, do you know where we're from? Sometimes I think people forget that we're from such rich land in resource, in energy, the oil, the gold, the mineral, the spirit. And we've all been splayed across the universe and told that we are not worthy of these things. So much of the resource of these luxury brands come from the place we should be calling home. We are luxury. We were the first kings and queens, if you want to go down that road. So I think I'm having to do a lot of deep learning. And I love luxury myself. Everyone listening knows that. <laughs> I know you like your... lie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I, I don't think either <laughs> of us can lie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to lie, but I'm just like, and especially black women, could you give us the room to enjoy stuff, please? We are tired. Sometimes it's just enjoyment. Mm. And um, for decades, we've not been allowed seemingly to be or appear to be frivolous or just buy something because we like it. Like it's not for a purpose. It's not for the use of by someone else. Mm. Let's talk about men and money for a moment. Mm hmm. There's a really annoying point in Ortega's new book, guys. I found it annoying, um, where she finally meets with a man who was shown interest, and only in the face of your career success, he seems to become intimidated and he shuts down. And your friend, I think, referenced him as Burger and those who are sex in the city fans. The minute I saw that, I was like, mm-hmm. Um As women work harder to close these financial gaps and become breadwinners, how do you think romantic relationships will evolve? Can they evolve? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. Let's, well, let's get into it then. Um, Yeah, the story I talked, and you know, generally within the book, I didn't really, something that I chose not to talk about quite deliberately was my own romantic life and dating life, but I included that one anecdote about this guy who for anyone listening basically I such a stupid decision in hindsight but even now when I tell my friends about it they were like you did what so I went on a book tour to Italy and this guy that I was in something with decided to bring him along and we'd everything had been hunky-dory before and basically he yeah like you said he shut down he was really weird about the money side of the trip he really kind of he put me down a lot like lots of negging and you know that was the end of that and it it really took me until I came back home and talked it through because I just didn't understand what had happened like me talking about the fact that there was money involved was only retrospective I only realized that afterward because at the time I was just confused and when I told my friend about it she was like oh babe he was intimidated by the success but and to be honest like I hadn't expected it to be as kind of high end and like to be spoiled and driven around by the publishers and to have all these events so I hadn't expected it to be at that level 
And I think probably mm. he hadn't expected it either. And I think it really confronted him because professionally he wasn't, he was going through some stuff at that time. And unfortunately, I think that's really representative of a lot of men's mindsets. You know, I would love to say differently, but I know in my experiences since and, you know, my friends' experiences, friends who are either doing well financially or who are kind of high profile or a mixture of the two who are killing it career-wise, men act funny. You know, they act intimidated. They either try and compete with you and try and, you know, say, well, I'm doing this, well, I'm doing that, you know, or they just kind of shut down. They, I, I don't think... I don't think we're at a position, apart from, you know, there are definitely exceptions to this rule. I don't want to say all men, but I'd say the vast majority. And especially if you meet them when there is a kind of mismatch. So I think it's one thing if you guys kind of get together and you're on the same level and then you grow and, you know, somebody takes off. And that in itself can, I'm sure, present its own challenges. But when you're going into a situation where, maybe you are the more successful one and I'll say successful mm-hmm. in every sense like you know I'm single now and dating ish and <laughs> <laughs> okay here's here's something for a while I you know I had a hinge profile which no longer and <laughs> listen <laughs> at one point I took my career out of my profile because it was so I had writer and after discussing it with a friend, I was like, I'm just going to take writer out because what would happen is writing is an interesting career. So guys would inevitably ask me, what do you write? And the mistake I made the first few times, I'd mentioned I'd written a book and I'd mentioned I'd done this and this and this. And they would just be very strange about it. So I was like, let me just take writer out so that we don't have to get into what I do professionally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was an article I cited in the book that, you know, by the writer Ashley C. Ford, where she interviews, I think it was 130 millennial women who were the breadwinners in their male-female relationships. And so many of them confessed to feeling guilty, to feeling insecure, that it caused issues in their relationships in a way that just isn't happening, would not happen to the same extent or in the same way if the roles were reversed. Like, we're so conditioned to expect men to be the higher earners and women to kind of, you know, subsidise it, that people react really funny. And there was another study that I found in, uh, I think it was in Sweden, that women who out-earn their partners, those husbands or those men are more likely to cheat on them. It's that kind of threatened masculinity and trying to reassert themselves. Um, So, you know, I don't have the answers on that one, I'm afraid. I just know what the facts are. Um, I think, you know, I guess it comes down to finding the right guy, but then doesn't everything. So, Girl, I say that from a position of publicly being the breadwinner. Mm. We talk about this a lot, mm. Hode and I, and me stumbling across this incredible Yoruba man. And I have to mention where he's from mm. and because he's from a place and a system. I'm Yoruba. His dad thought we were crazy. <laughs> His dad is like, so she's going to work and you're changing nappies for why? You know, like, please make this make sense. Mm. I'm very confused. And um, there are a lot of people that were initially like, this is not the vibe. But when you do find that person, you also have to be encouraged that you are entitled to make it work for your household. And it blows my mind even, and I understand the masculinity and the patriarchy. It blows my mind that you would possibly keep hundreds of thousands out of your household because it's like, well, I'm the guy. Mm. I don't want her going to work. I don't want, like, get it together. Get it together. And so I can't imagine what it's like to be a woman like you, who is so far established in her career, having to, in some ways, hide that. Yeah. That's so annoying. I'm so annoyed on your behalf. Girl, me too. (laughs) (laughs) You're telling me, like, I've... Ooh. Why are we hiding this? It's just like... And also, you know, to an extent, like, I'm not... It's it's not something that you can hide forever, so it's not as if I'm, like, fully hiding it, but it's just not something I lead mm. with. Like, I was telling, yeah. I think, my editor about an interaction I had the other day, and she was like, how did you leave it that late to mention what you did? And I was like, <laughs> that's just <laughs> what I do. 
so yeah, it's it's, and I know I'm not, I'm no, I know I'm not alone in that. Like I said, At I have all. friends who do similar things to me, and and or just stories that I hear. But eventually, you know, hopefully, <laughs> the right one comes along. And I'm so impressed that you have managed to make that work because less so about within your own personal marriage, but just because I know the external chatter and external opinions can affect the internal and affect the unit so I think it's yeah I think it's really brilliant that you've you guys have managed to do that thank you it's a work in progress always Mm. and as you would well know I think what calmed his side down more is when you can like attach titles to this success or this hard work Mm. it's like oh she's a Sunday Times bestseller Mm. okay we now understand why you're at home Mm. you know to facilitate that. that yeah Exactly. It's annoying that it's that way, but it helps. Mm. Anyway, final question. Thank you so much for giving me your time, but final question. What money lesson, what is the biggest money lesson you've learned the hard way? And I would like you to share, so hopefully others won't have to. The biggest money lesson that I've learned the hard way, and I swear I'm not just saying this to plug my phone. <laughs> Plug away, babe. Plug away. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> is is about okay? So it's the fact that we need to talk about the fact we need to talk about money. <laughs> However, I want to give an example of where not talking about money really screwed me over, and it's something I talk about in the book, which is essentially when I started working, I kind of had like quite an old school mentality about talking about money, discussing. Pay. I'd say old school, the mentality that most people have. I don't think. Most mm-hmm. people really discuss and share salaries with people. And I had my own reasons for not sharing salaries with my friends. And essentially, I think four years into my career, or four or five years into my career, I found that, that I was being really massively, not massively, but I was being significantly underpaid at a job that mm. I did. And I called up my best friend, who also worked in the same industry as me. He didn't work in the same job, but he worked in the same industry. So he had an idea of what, and I found this out from a recruiter. And I called up my best friend, and was like, can you believe this? And he was like, Atega, how did you not know that that was below the market rate? And I was like, because I don't talk to anyone about it. He was he was like, why this whole secret secretive thing you've got around salary? He was like, it's got to end. He was like, you make too big a deal of that. And there were other reasons why I was being underpaid. Like it was a very kind of gendered um, environment as well, and there was a lot of misogyny. And you know, gender came into it massively. But in terms of me not knowing the actual extent of the gap is because I wasn't out there sharing that information with people and I was keeping it very close to my chest. And literally, I think that day or the next day, I messaged, you know, the group chat I had with my girlfriends. I didn't ask what they earned because we all worked in different industries, but I just said to them, you guys need to be talking about it with your peers. Like, you need to start talking about money. And so for me, that was because... You know, other money lessons that I've learned have not felt as I'm generally I always say that I'm I'm pretty financially literate. I'm generally quite good with money. I haven't made that I know of expensive mistakes. That is the most expensive mistake that I've made. And it's something that completely reframed my attitude to money. Like I'm such, you know, an open but a friend will text me, ask me about this. Someone says, Oh, what did you get get paid for that job? I'm fine with that. And that is directly as a result of that situation so that's not a mistake that I'll make ever again I will add to that and say my biggest one um was keeping my head in the sand about credit and Mm. my credit file Mm. and um and and this is really interesting and always using the excuse of well I'll never be rich enough to care Mm. so why bother as the excuse for why I just didn't even want to sign up to a very easy Apple website that will reveal the information that would help me in the future. Um, jokes on me. I am rich enough to care. <laughs> and, and, and learning some of these lessons really hurt because like I'm a mum of two now. So it feels like I'm having to play catch up a bit. So I would say to anyone like, um, there is no time like the present with getting on top of your credit score. Just rip the plaster off, mm. tip out all the drawer. The drawer. I know you've got the drawer where you stuff the debt letters to the bottom. Girl, I've been there. Tip out the drawer and really just get a handle on it. But ignoring it, like ignoring your money issues or 
the debt you're in or the debt you're accumulating, it is nothing but a cancer. Mm. And like cancer, if you catch it early, you're good to go, but it, it can become explosive. And I don't want that for anyone listening. So, yeah. Anyway, Otega, thank you so much. This was better than I expected. <laughs> and I know. And you know what? I'm going to be that ghetto girl and be like, you'll probably be listening to this podcast in a different order, but this is the first ever recording of Sister Sister. Oh. And I have been... Yeah, you're, you're very I, slick. You are a pro. <laughs> I did not realize that at all. Do you know why, girl? Because um, because of the pandemic, and I'm not your baby mother. I'm a pro at being the guest, so mm. I've just picked up on the little little. Um, but Otega is my first guest, and outside of that, she's always been someone I've publicly and privately admired. Thank you. And so this is this is a really big moment for us. So thank you for coming on. Where can people find you online? You can find me tweeting and getting into fights on Twitter at Otega Uwagba. That's literally all I do. At Otega Uwagba and on Instagram at the same. It's O-T-E-G-H-A-U-W-A-G-B-A and my book We Need to Talk About Money is out now. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode which was all about money with Otega Uwagba. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode. You can follow me on Instagram where I am at Candice Brathwaite. If you've enjoyed this, please don't forget to rate and review as every little helps. And my new book, Sister Sister, is available to buy now in hardback, ebook and audio. Talk to you next week. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.